I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me once again to Romans chapter 8. We're going to study verses 3 and 4 once again. One thing I've noticed over years of getting to hike wonderful and established trails is that whenever I get in a hurry, I miss the very best things. And so as we went over this last week, we went hastily through it. This is yet the word of God. It is in every way deep enough to drown an elephant and shallow enough that children can play within it. And so we're going to come back to the word of God again. Romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 4. And we're going to study the wonder of the cross of Jesus Christ where love and justice are beheld in the most full display. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold and sweeter also than honey. And drippings from the honeycomb is the law of the Lord. Let us pray together. Lord in heaven, we can conceal nothing from you. O Lord, you know the wickedness of our hearts. O Lord, you know the waywardness of our minds. You know our deepest and most urgent needs. And Lord, you have provided graciously for all of them in the person of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come again to your word, Lord, as we retread very familiar ground, we pray and plead that you would give us spiritual understanding Lord, that we would see the cross with just a glimpse of the magnificence that you have seen it with, O Lord. Lord, we pray for your help. Lord, defend us from the attacks of Satan as we hear your word. Defend us from the distractions of the flesh. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can that be? You and I, as we've studied the book of Romans, 
As we know ourselves, we know one particular truth about who we are before the Lord of glory. If we're honest, even in a fraction of a percent, we know that we are sinners. We know that we are people who have broken the law of God in its letter and in its spirit. We know that we have offended the Lord not just once, but numerous times. If you're like me, and you're struck with a biblical, spiritual moment of honesty, you simply have this terrifying reality reminded to your mind and soul regularly, and that is that you have forgotten more sins that you have committed than you have ever confessed to the Lord. How can there be no more condemnation? How is it that Jesus the Christ could die and that would remove the anger, the wrath, all of the sentence of my sin and guilt and death? How can that be? Well, in these two verses, Paul is taking us this morning and attempting to identify for us the magnificence of the love and the justice of God that meet one another in the body of the eternal Son, pierced through and crucified, cursed on the cross. The two things that I want us to consider this morning in verses 3 and 4, the first portion of verse 3, 3a, if you'll allow it, is the great need. The great need. And then in the second portion of verse 3, 3b, and also, verse 4, the Redeemer gift. The Redeemer gift. Just two points. And so let's look once again at verse 3 as Paul explains to us the wonder that we're no longer condemned. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You know, in that passage of Scripture, we have Paul denying a thing about the law. But then he doesn't give great specificity about what the law could not do. And if you're a good Bible reader, like I hope you are, you're following along with me this morning, you may ask the question, what is it that the law can't do? Well, you need to pursue that if you're a good Bible reader, if you're being reflective on what we've just read. And you may also ask the inverse, the opposite question. If I want to know what the law can't do, it makes a good bit of sense to know what the law can do and actually does for the Christian. Because in the shadow of it, we can discern even more clearly where we are and what the Lord has done for us. So what can the law do in the life of the Christian? There's one thing profoundly clear. The Apostle Paul has already testified to it. And that is that the law shows us our sinfulness. For I would not have known sin if not for the law, Paul has said. 
I would not have known sin if not for the law. How does that work? Well, the law holds before us the character of God in ten magnificent points. Those things work like a mirror, and it's as if it is shining the light of God back to us, and you see your reflection within it. Even if we're to read the Ten Commandments off, and I encourage you to think deeply about them, you're going to simply say as you go one through ten, time and time and time and time again, I've broken this, I've broken that, I've, I may not have broken it in its letter, but I've broken it in its spirit, or I've broken it in its letter and its spirit. And then if you're honest, you'll confront, be confronted with the fact that not only have you done it once, but you've done it two times. Four times, 15 times, or times without number. And so the law shows us our sinfulness. And this is one of those, I think, terrifying uses of what the law does do. Because it doesn't affirm you. It doesn't affirm me. It doesn't affirm this world. It does exactly what our culture says you shouldn't do. It is intolerant to who we are. It says, here are 15,000 things wrong with you. And you say, Pastor, that sounds so negative. And this morning I came from being uplifted to the church. I'm not pointing at you. I'm also pointing at myself, friends. This is the reality of what the law does. It shows us, you, me, and every single human being, man, woman, and child, the reality of our sinfulness in the light of God's holiness. It shows us our sin. Secondly, it shows us God's righteousness. It shows us God's righteousness. If you ever needed a picture of what God is like, you've got it in the Ten Commandments. Truly more deeply than you could even assess from the recognition of a fleshly form. We understand that God is a spirit. He hath not a body like men. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We know this, that he's spiritual, but we also are told who he is in his inner person and in the working of the heart of God and in his mind. His holiness is shown to his people in the things that delight him for our lives. The law holds up who God is and it tells you and it tells me your God is holy. He hasn't a speck of sin within him. He's altogether good, altogether just, altogether loving, in perfect proportion and in entire perfection. There is nothing in him that is wrong. He doesn't turn to the left nor to the right. He is altogether faithful. The law shows us God's righteousness. You may say, I don't know, this sounds something like it's a bit strange. This is strained, Pastor, that the law shows us God's character. I can look at you and you can look at me and you can judge by the things that I do a lot of things. You can. I can see you do very good things. You can see me do good things. We can work in a soup kitchen. We can feed the hungry. We can dig wells in sub-Saharan Africa. We can clothe children. 
in the poorest of the poor slums in the world. And yet within our hearts, according to our desires, the things that we delight in and we want and receive from these good acts can be altogether wicked. I can do those things and feed the hungry, not out of a heart of compassion for them, but out of a simple desire to get attention and adoration from other people. So people would look and point to me and say, you are very good. You're so impressive. You're an excellent person. It is the character of the heart, the character of the affections that show most truly the character of a person. The law of God does precisely that for the person of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The law shows us God's righteousness. In worship toward himself, the role of creatures to creator, and also in the life that creatures live toward one another. There are, after all, two tables of the law. The first four regarding God and his holiness. No other gods before me. No graven images. Take not the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All regard what God wants from you and from me in relationship with him. And then the sixth through the tenth, what you and I are to do and how we are to behave with one another. The law shows us the holiness, the righteousness of God. And then in the third place, we can say that the law teaches us how God desires that we should live. That's pretty simple, isn't it? God gave us ten laws, ten specific rules for life and living, and that he wants us to do that. And we know that if we do those things, that in every way and in every sense, we have pleased him, and we're living a life that would be pleasing to him, correct? It's very simple. The law is like a teacher, like a schoolmaster, where it takes us and shows us the delights of God and encourages us to delight in them ourselves. Three things that the law also does. But there's a problem that we have, isn't there? There's really not a problem with the law itself. It's a thing that's perfect as its author is perfect. Undoubtedly, it bears within it the perfections of God as it is part of his holy and inerrant word. But you and I have a problem. That problem is sin. You and I have broken the law originally and actually. We have broken it in our sin nature and are accountable to all of its commands from the second of conception until the day that we're in the grave. If you and I don't do a single thing, we live our lives without a single word, without a single thought. Nonetheless, the whole of who we are is still accountable to the breaking of the law of God in Adam. That's the first portion of our sin problem. That if we never did a single thing with our hands, with our tongues, with our minds, nonetheless, we would still be born in sinful flesh within which we were conceived. And you say, well, that's not too much fun. 
The problem is so much worse, and it is that we do have sin that is actual. We do have sin that we have committed. We have thought things against God. We have said things against God. We have taken his name in vain. We haven't kept the Lord's day in faithfulness. We have in our hearts entertained idols very often, even of our own image. We in every way have broken the law of God before him and against other men. I've sinned against you, you've sinned against me, and we've done it not just once, not ten times, but times without number on a ledger that only God is capable of keeping up with. Have you ever done something, a sin, and you simply said, like the Apostle Paul, I don't understand my own actions? You sin and then you back away and you say, I knew it was sin when I conceived to do it. I knew that it was sin when I began to plan to carry it out. I knew that it was sin when I was doing it and I know it's sin now. And yet I still don't even understand why I would do this and even look into the face of it. Knowing that I'm offending God and still do it. You ever done that? I have. Paul has. In chapter 7 he reviews this. We don't even understand our sin until at times we come away from it and then review our own hearts and simply say, oh, as I think on it deeper and more fully, oh, the horrible things I find about myself, oh, the things, the presumptions of my sinful heart are then revealed to me. Oh, how painful it is to know that even as I offended another brother, another sister, another person, a man or a woman or a child, even those things that I did against them that landed upon their flesh and hurt their lives, those things were committed against the image of God in them and are evidence of a heart that despises the God of heaven and that is hard and rebellious against the holy God who created all things and all people in his image and after his own likeness. We have a real problem when we come to the law. And it is that by sin we have broken it. We have become guilty of the offense of the law. We have been in every way a people who in ourselves deserve Punishment, because in sin we have offended him and ruptured the relationship that we were made for with him and have come into a relationship of rebellion and division at enmity with God. That's our problem. The law cannot do what for us. It can't deal with the reality that we have broken it. The law can tell us God is holy. The law can tell us we are sinners. The law can tell us you should live this way unto the Lord. But it cannot say to you, I am your Savior. And friends, that's what you and I need. What does the law do regarding a sinner? Well, it's pretty simple. It stands as a sign, like a verdict, and it testifies with the tongue of a herald our guiltiness and our deserving of eternal punishment 
It stands as a mouthpiece to condemn the sinner. It can't say, here's grace. It can't say, yes, you've sinned 10 times, 15 times, 15,000 times. But look, just do this, do that, and you're going to dig your way back out of the hole. It can't. Why? Because the law is just. One transgression is sufficient to condemn and to damn for eternity. And none of us can claim we've only got one. That is a significant problem. That is the law weakened by the flesh. Nothing wrong with the law, but a thing wrong with us. And so friends, I just want to ask you the question, can you see your great need? Because God has seen it. Can you see your great need? You and I need a redeemer. We need someone to save us from God's just punishment. We need somebody to reconcile us with God. That's our need. We need someone to come and to experience the justice of God in our place. That's your great need. That's my great need. And that is the thing that the law weakened by the flesh could never, ever, 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 ever do. It cannot die in your place, but it will pronounce the death verdict over you and continue to do it. Something I want to hold out to you, friends, very clearly that we all need to see is that our lives are not lived before God in the same way that other world religions would teach. This is so important when we talk about the law and we talk about the holiness of God and the justice of God and the cross of Christ. Our souls are not judged against a balanced measuring scale. You understand what I mean? You ever seen these balanced measuring scales? You've got one thing on one side and a counteracting weight on the other, and you're trying to get them as balanced as possible so you can know the weight of the other, right? Our markets have very smart scales. We don't see this very often, but maybe you understand what I'm saying. You and I don't have this issue that, yes, while we have sinned, yes, while we've sinned a whole lot, that the opposite and the thing that we really need to do is just to do more good so that the good outweighs the bad, And so that the good brings us the good end of salvation. That's not at all what the justice of God is like. That's not at all what the cross is like. Not at all. The cross isn't only Jesus being more holy than you have ever been unholy. The cross of Jesus is the God-man experiencing the suffering you deserve. It is your sins being punished to the full, to the utmost. The nails that pierced his hands, physical emblems of the divine and piercing wrath of God that shot him through unto death. You and I need one who will come not only to forget or to forgive our sins, but we need one to come and to bear up the pain that is owed to our sins. We need atonement. We need a suffering Savior. We need a Lord to be put to death. 
That's your need, and that's my need. And that is what the law, weakened by the flesh, just cannot provide for me and for you. Second part of verse 3, and in verse 4, we have the Redeemer gift. The Redeemer gift. Look at it with me. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Let's look at that for a second. The good news of this verse is that God knows our greatest need. He knows it. He's seen it. Just as we prayed a moment ago, there is nothing concealed from God. He knows the depth of our heart much more deeply than we do. He's way more honest about us than we are. And he has given one for us. And that's what this passage of scripture is telling us. How did God accomplish your salvation? How is it that there is no condemnation for you and for me and for our sins? It's by sending his own son. It's by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, in whose body he condemned sin. Now, as you hear verse 3, you ought to hear the echoes of another very famous verse of Scripture, shouldn't you? By sending his own son, you should hear John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The first portion of this section of verse 3 shouts to the love of God for you and for me. It's right on the back end of the reality of the law and what it can't do for us. On the back end of all of the terror of our sin that the law shows to us. God seeing you and seeing me in the judgment of our soul in real honesty. And him loving you in the midst of that at the darkest of your life and sending his son with nothing that would commend you to him except that he loves you in his son. That's what you're being told in verse 3 by sending his own son. Make no mistake what we're talking about here. We're talking about the pre-incarnate Christ, the eternal Son, the one eternally begotten of the Father, who is sat at His right hand, through whom all things were made, apart from whom nothing was made that was made. This Son, the one who has known the Father and been known by the Father, the one who forever has sung praises to the ears of the Father and has had fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. This is the one who has given of himself freely and truly and most profoundly to the Father and who has worshipped the Father for every day of eternity. That's the one whom he sent. And he wrapped him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why does it say that? I spoke briefly to this last week. I've done it even in past weeks as well. This is to say in the likeness of 
of sinful flesh in our image, in our humanity, yet not in our sinfulness. He came like us in every respect, yet without sin. He came, God, wrapped in the flesh, the God-man for us. And what did God do with him? This crowning, wonderful, magnificent creature, creator in one man. For sin, he condemned sin in his flesh. And you may say, Pastor, okay, I I get the outline. Help me to understand why this is so exciting and why this is so specifically wonderful to you. Well, it's because of this. One of our sins deserves the full execution of the judgment of God unto our death. I've committed so many more than just one. So many more, infinitely more, in a sense, at least according to my own mind. So much more than I can perceive. But in Christ, there's no sin. If God were to put me to death for one sin, he would be entirely just. If he were to pour out his punishment on me for the multitude of my sins, it would be as if one sin is punished and the rest just continue on because I can't even bear up the full weight. And you say, but pastor, don't you just know that God, he forgives your sins and just forgets the rest of them. And I'll just simply say, I don't know about you, but if you've ever owned a, uh, owed a debt to somebody and they say, okay, well, I know you don't have all the money to pay for everything that you owe to me. How about you just pay me this portion and, you know, I just, I won't worry about the rest of it right now. I'll just kind of forgive you of it. I'll take all that, all that debt you have and I'll, just, I'll put it in the filing cabinet. I'll put it at the back. How comfortable are you with that sort of thing? Leaving open debts. Paying only a portion, a pittance, not the full cost. And then wouldn't you be like me and simply say, I don't know, I'd really rather just pay you all of it right now and get it all settled so that in six months, a year, six years, 16 years, 60 years, I don't then find in the mail... A significant bill with interest. That's how I feel about it. I want to pay it all. I don't want it next week, next month, next year, next decade. I want it all now. I want it all dealt with. And the reality is if you have a God who only punishes a portion of your sin and not all of it, then you have things that are still against you. God's wrath burns against you. And what we're told here, verses 3 and 4, is that in the innocent, righteous, holy person of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, God, in every way, to the utmost, to the greatest extent, condemned our sin in His flesh. He took it all. How can there be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And the answer is, Jesus was condemned for you for everything you have done for the whole of your nature of sin and for everything you will do 
completely. Why is God not angry at you because he has been completely angry at the Son? Why is there not wrath for you because all of his wrath was poured out on the Son? Why didn't God just forget his wrath? Because it was just. It's because it's just. It was deserved. It's holy to be punished. And you're told in the passage of Scripture that he condemned sin in the flesh of his holy son. Praise be to God. That is the only way. There is now then therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because all of our sins have been condemned and have been punished fully at the cross. And it is because God loved you On the cross, he gave his son out of a loving heart for you, and he punished all of your sins in his flesh and accomplished his justice. Do you see the cross? Even a glimpse of it? It's not the bedraggled, poor symbol of a forgetful God. It is the magnificent, magnificent display of the love and the justice of God for us. And we go on. We continue to read in verse 4, not only that he condemned sin in the flesh, but that this was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What did we just say? As I preached ahead of myself a little bit. The law requires something of you and it requires something of me. And when we sin, it requires punishment. And the reason why Jesus suffered was so that that punishment's done. And we could say that the law is good and the law is holy as our God is holy and good. Not only that, not only did he deal with our sin, not only did he suffer in our place, But there is a wonderful exchange. And you've heard this. Any Christian who's ever heard anything about the gospel should simply know this. That on the cross he took our sins. And on the cross he gave to us his obedience. His righteousness. All of his law keeping became ours. And so there is a double sense or a double use if you will. Of verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How can you and I as Christians continue to keep the law? Yes, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually put sin to death. But the reality is, is that all of the righteousness of the law that we still owe to God, we have in Jesus. We have in His righteousness and in His obedience given to us. Isaiah 53, verse 10, regards this and says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was God's will that this all should happen. It was his work, his plan, his salvation for us, his outline to do 
what the law weakened by the flesh could not do so that you and I would have it ringing in our ears that there is therefore now no condemnation for you and for me if we believe in Christ and are united with him. And I ask you, friend, are you clothed in Christ? Or are you afraid of God? Are you assured of salvation? Are you overwhelmed? Are you terrified at the testimony of your sinfulness? Or are you assured at the wonderful telling of the atoning work of Jesus for you? There is one thing and one thing alone necessary for the salvation of believers, and that is that Jesus Christ died for us and freely gave us salvation by faith in him. Will you have faith in Christ Jesus? I call you to it. And Christians, I charge you to glory in this magnificent and wonderful salvation this gift of a redeemer let's pray together our father in heaven we thank you and praise you for jesus christ the risen lord the one who came in our form and lived among us yet without sin and who took up all of your punishment and all of your wrath and satisfied your justice for us lord the one who hung in our place the one who groaned and grieved our griefs. Oh Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the Savior of sinners, Jesus, the spotless lamb, Jesus, the redeemer, Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king. Father, we ask also that you would work in us. Oh Lord, help us that we would be a people who would hate sin and love the Lord. Help us to be a people who would have new hearts and new eyes, new ears, renewed minds, to walk and to live In Jesus Christ, our Father in heaven, we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.